1980, Dr. Karl Otto Pohl, a German economist and president of the Bundesbank from 1980 to 1981, said, inflation is like toothpaste. Once it's out, you can hardly get it back in again. So the best thing is not to squeeze too hard on the tube. At the time, Pohl was struggling to control what was by German contemporary standards runaway inflation of 6%. What is inflation? Inflation is a rise in the general level of prices as measured by the consumer's price index. Wait, wait. It is far too much economist speak, and you'll need another beer if I carry on like that. So, let's try and perhaps make it a little bit um, more pictorial. Think of it like this. Suppose you come here every week, and uh, next week you find out beers are $1 more expensive um, than they are this week. Then yes, beer has gone up in price, right? That's a tragedy in its own sense. But the question is, does it cost you more for your night out in total? Since beer is not the only thing you probably buy. Let's say you always buy the same bundle of things. You buy a couple of beers, you buy wine, you buy a pizza, and you buy a movie ticket. And that's what you buy. So the answer to my question about whether or not your night out costs more is that depends. Maybe other things have gone down in price to offset the beer price rise, and overall, you spend the same or even less. But let's suppose that next week, it is more expensive to buy the beers, wine, and pizzas that you buy every week. That's inflation. Enough things going up in price that the bundle of things you want to buy costs you more. At its most basic, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Suppose this. You wake up tomorrow and you find that your bank account balance has mysteriously doubled. Well, that's nice. But unknown to you, everyone else's bank account has also been doubled. Now, what are you going to do? You are likely to want to go out and spend some of this windfall that has landed in your lap. But so is everyone else. Now, there's no additional goods and services to buy. They didn't magically appear overnight. Just more money chasing what there is. Now, that's going to drive up prices because you are now willing to pay a little bit more. Why would you not? You've got double the money. Yeah, I'll pay an extra 10 bucks for that MP3 player, that speaker, that microwave, whatever. And so you're willing to pay a bit more, and so is everyone else, and that drives up prices or inflation. Too much money chasing too few goods. Some classic examples of inflation is where money's been created. So the Spanish in the 16th century brought back gold from South America, thinking that would make them rich, and it did. But, of course, think about what's happening. Essentially, they are just creating money. And prices in Spain rose by about 300% between 1,500 and 1,600. Now, that's only about 1.5% a year, right, as it turns out, but by the standards of that time, that's incredibly high, and it probably didn't happen gradually. It would have happened in jumps. So that's quite unusual uh, for them. German hyperinflation, many of you have probably heard of that, 1922-23. At its height, prices were doubling in Germany every three and a half days, twice a week. Okay. What does that mean to you? Suppose that that was happening here, and you've turned up here tonight, and the beer is, I don't know, I didn't pay for mine, it's 10 bucks? Okay, $10, right? And that beer, when you come back next week, is $40. $40. It's doubled twice, every three and a half days, 10 to 20 to 40, right? 
That works out to be beer costing $2,500 in about a month, $650,000 in two months, and $167 million in three. Now, if you don't think I'm right, go home, do the math, okay? I promise you. I, I got the number and I thought, can't be right. It's right. Now, the funny thing about that is it's not even the highest inflation in history. That honour goes to Hungary in 1945, where they had a high monthly peak inflation rate of four times 10 to the power of 16. I don't even know what that number is. It's got a hell of a lot of zeros in it, and prices were doubling every 15 hours. How do you cope? Okay, so what? Prices are rising rapidly, but why do we care, right? Well, inflation is harmful for a number of reasons, some of which we're beginning to rediscover. It reduces your buying power of the money you have. Suppose you've got $100 today. Think of it as a, a note, right? And beer, why do I keep returning to that? Is it maybe because I got this one free? Oh, possibly. So, right, it reduces the value of what you have. Suppose you have $100, right? Beer is $10 a pint. That $100 is worth 10 beers. You put that $100 note in your pocket for a year, and you forget about it. In a year's time, suppose that beer has gone up to $12.50 a pint. That $100 is exactly the same $100 that you put in your pocket a year ago, but guess what? It's only worth eight beers. It's not the number on the front of the note that matters. It's what you can get with it. And inflation has reached into your pocket and stolen some of the value of that $100 to the extent that you now get fewer beers than you did this time last year. An hourly wage rate of $100 an hour is no good if beer is $100 a pint. Right. It's particularly hard on those on fixed incomes like superannuitants and beneficiaries. Their income is only adjusted from time to time and inflation eats away at their income. It makes it hard for people to make good decisions because prices are really important at telling us what we should be doing more of. So if we need more accountants, not sure if we should, right? But if we need more accountants, we would hope that the wage rate for accountants might rise to attract more people into accountancy. Inflation messes up that sort of price signal, right? And that's not good. It also pushes workers up tax brackets, something you'll be hearing, I think, more about. Workers who are now on the minimum wage, if they work a 40-hour week and do one hour of overtime a week, will now find themselves kicked into the 30 cents in the dollar tax bracket, Right? We call that bracket creep or fiscal drag. Those on the living wage are already there, are already there. And so it's inflation which has pushed those people up into that tax bracket. Minimum wage, your marginal hour gets taxed at 30 cents in the dollar. Doesn't seem quite right, does it? Tax brackets haven't been adjusted since 2008. Well, wonder why. Of course, all of those people going up tax brackets gets the government more money. They're reluctant to change the tax brackets as a result. And when they do, they call it a tax cut. Right? Watch out for that sneaky trick. But let me tell you, the 33-cent tax bracket kicks in at about $70,000. In 2011-12, 15% of taxpayers were in that 33% tax bracket. By 2021, it had risen to 27%. Twice as many. Ruth Richardson who's actually here tonight, right, if you can spot her in the audience. I didn't invite her. She just turned up, right? 
and I didn't slot this in because she was here. A couple of weeks ago, Ruth's previous finance minister wrote about this recently in an opinion piece entitled, The Taxation Problem I Should Have Fixed 33 Years Ago. Ruth, damn right. <laughs> Not blaming you. Well, little. Okay. So inflation is bad, particularly a lot of it, and if people don't expect it. Well, what do we deal with it? For a long time, up until about the 1970s, policy was dominated by what's called the Phillips Curve trade-off, technical term. But it was just the idea that if you wanted to get um, low unemployment, it meant living with higher inflation, and to get inflation down meant living with higher unemployment. There was a trade-off here. You could have one but not the other. That trade-off, Phillips, is actually named after a New Zealand economist, Bill Phillips. And the paper he wrote is one of the most widely cited in all of economics. I think he may well have eventually won a Nobel Prize had he not died, uh, perhaps prematurely before his time, and they don't award Nobels posthumously. But the interesting thing about it is this. His life reads like an economist's version of Indiana Jones. I know, we have a low threshold for adventure in economics, okay? But his, his life reads like this, okay? I'll tell you a little bit about him. He was born in Dannyburg, 1914. He worked in the Australian outback as a crocodile hunter and cinema manager, right? Go figure. He trains as an electrical engineer in the UK, and he goes off to fight in World War II. He's a Japanese prisoner of war for three and a half years. While a POW, he repairs and miniaturizes a secret radio and fashions a secret water boiler for tea, which he hooked into the camp lighting system. And the guards could never figure out why the lights were dim at a certain time of night. After the war, in fact, I think his story features a little bit obliquely in um, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, right? If you know the movie, yeah, with David Bowie in it. After the war, he goes to London, and, of course, he studies economics, right? Of course he does. Uh, and uh, he's fascinated with how the economy is like a piece of plumbing. He's got an electrical engineer background. And he invents a hydraulic machine, believe it or not, to show how the economy works. And you basically, it, it, there's, a, there's a working model still in the Reserve Bank Museum. You tip water into, a, into one of the buckets of something you want to change. So you might say, what happens when government spending changes? Well, tip some water into the bucket that says government spending. And the water flows around this machine, and interest rates do this, and prices do that, the exchange rate does another thing, right? Very, very, very clever. In 1958, he publishes a short paper um, showing how if inflation is high, then unemployment's low and vice versa. And he's a New Zealander. But that was that. It became accepted that if you want low inflation, you were going to have to have high unemployment. Nixon, President Nixon, said, we'll take inflation if necessary, but we can't take unemployment. And he's articulating that trade-off, right? So he's saying our policy settings are going to give us one but not the other. So what do governments try? They try various ways to control inflation. Nixon tried a wage price freeze in 1971. We tried it in 1983. Never works. Governments tend to blame all sorts of things. Greedy corporations, that's out there at the moment. Landlords, always a favourite target. Currency speculators, scum of the earth, right? Kind of thing. Irrational stock markets, anything but the real cause, which is normally too much money. The economist Milton Friedman comes along, some of you may have heard of him, in the 1960s and says inflation is, quote, a monetary phenomenon. He reminds people it's about the money. It's too much money, 
and it's not price controls or exchange rate controls or restrictions on shopping hours that will stabilise prices. It's control of the money supply. And what he showed was that there is no long-run trade-off between inflation and unemployment. He said, look, in the short run, yep, there's some pain here. You want to get inflation down, you're going to have to take some unemployment. But in the long run, no, you don't have to live with that. In the late 80s, countries start to give their money printers, that's their central banks, ours was called the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, one job. So they turned around to their central banks and they said, you've got one job, right? Control inflation. Do you know New Zealand was the first country to put it into legislation? And 30 countries or more have since followed and are now what is known as inflation-targeting economies. Well, in the early 90s, the Reserve Bank did get inflation down, but there's a short-term cost, remember, unemployment. And it hits nearly, anybody remember what it got up to nearly? 12 nearly, it was 11.7 and it's at its peak, right? Unemployment doesn't hit all groups equally. It hits the low-skilled harder. It hits those with low education. And of course, we know that uh, Maori, Pacifica, uh, um, are also overly represented in low education stats sometimes as well. So all of those things means unemployment you know, hits, um, hits some groups more than others. But the period then from 1996 to 2008 is very stable. And it's solid growth with low inflation. We showed, and others showed, you can have low unemployment and low inflation. Even the global financial crisis wasn't the event that the Great Depression was. Around the world, unemployment in the Great Depression rose to well into double digits. Uh, in Germany, 1932, unemployment was 43%. In the United States, in 1933, it hit about 34%. What about recent days? We now have inflation of around 7%. This is higher than any other period of time since 1990. Now, the opposition is blaming inflation on too much government spending. The government says it's a global phenomenon with the war in Ukraine, COVID and so forth. Is the government or the opposition right? The answer is yes. <laughs> yes, COVID-induced stickiness of supply chains and the war in Ukraine have played their part. Remember, too much money chasing too few goods? Well, this is contributing to the too few goods bit. But what else? In response to COVID, the government pumps money into the economy back in 2020. Now, this was actually quite reasonable. Nobody knew what they were dealing with. This is uncharted territory. And the big fear was that economic activity would collapse and we would have a very sharp, high spike in unemployment. And so governments around the world said, we will pump money into creating um, you know, security for jobs. In fact, one of the smart things they did was they very quickly rolled out the um, payments to employers for employers to keep their workers on, and they didn't put strings on it, right? Because the point was to get it out quickly. If you say, we're only going to give money to the deserving, you've got to set up a whole process to get it to them, and I guarantee they wouldn't have got it there in time. And what we know is, if, if the lab closes, right, because it can't sustain itself over a lockdown, it ain't coming back, Right? and those workers have lost their jobs. So that was smart, right, at the start. The situation is unknown. But they overcooked it. They really did overcook it, and they continued to spend when they didn't need to, and on projects that were hardly COVID-related.
And Grant Robertson's line was, Parliament has voted us that money to spend. Yes, but you don't have to spend it, <laughs> right? But they did. The Auditor General stated in a report, quote, I have therefore been concerned about the accountability for spending in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's a very polite way of saying it, isn't it? Let me give you some context for the size of these numbers. In 2016, the government spent $96 billion. And the forecast for 2021 was $114 billion. In 2021, they actually spent $134 billion. $20 billion more than was forecast five years earlier. Now, you might say, ah, that's the COVID blip. But it is more demand for goods and services, remember. Now, if you think COVID is a blip, you would expect, therefore, government spending to perhaps tail back down again off that blip. But last year's budget forecast spending to continue to rise to hit $177 billion by 2026. In 10 years from 2016, it's an increase of 85%, not adjusting for inflation, but that's relatively minor, 85% in government spending. That's a fairly big chunk of extra demand for goods and services. But then something else happened. The Reserve Bank came along and put this COVID-induced spending on steroids. They decided to buy the government debt. See, the problem for the government is they don't have cash flows that meet expenditure, so they've got to raise debt. And especially when they're spending money they don't have. Now, when they go to raise debt, they have to convince people to lend their money. And sometimes that might push up interest rates, and the Reserve Bank decided they didn't want that to happen. So they bought the government debt, and they bought a lot of it, a shedload of it, $54 billion worth of it. Now, essentially, what they're doing is printing money to buy government debt, in rough terms. Let me give you some, uh, a, 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 a little wee factoid for that. Between 1995 and 2019, the money supply in New Zealand, so the money supply is, broadly speaking, notes and coins plus money people have got that they can spend in their accounts, like FPOS accounts and that sort of stuff, right? Not your superannuation fund, not your 12-month deposit, that sort of stuff. Money you can spend, right? That money grows between 95 and 2019 by about 8% a year to accommodate population growth, a bit more spending, etc. 8%. From March 2020 to September 22, it grew by 30% per annum, right? 30% per annum. Well, remember, too much money chasing too much goods. Now, to be fair, other central bankers were all doing the same thing around the world, but the problem with that is they all drank from the same Kool-Aid, and they were all too slow to realise how bad for inflation this actually was. And there were voices out there telling them that this was likely to be true, and they've copped a bagging. Arthur Grimes... Professor Arthur Grimes, former Reserve Bank chairman, said, quote, they're completely to blame for allowing... This is harsh... This is fighting talk, right? How many of you would say this about your previous employer? Maybe some of you would, right? <coughs> they're com don't, you don't have to confess. They're completely to blame for allowing this to happen. They've been incompetent. They've been really incompetent, he said. Not just incompetent, really incompetent. He also blamed the, reserve, the government for giving the Reserve Bank more than one job. Now, that's another story, and we can talk about that if you want. So if you want to talk about that in the Q&A, happy to talk about how they messed up the just one job thing. But now we're back to the toothpaste. 
It's proving hard to get this thing back in. You don't notice when inflation's 1% or 2%. Your wages probably go up enough. You can adjust your spending. Oh, okay, bananas are a bit more expensive. No worries, I buy oranges. Right, you can cope. But 7%, they notice. Have a look at the pressure that's coming on for wage rises uh, now. And that's a problem. Big wage um, prices, big wage increases, simply fuel more inflation. But of course, we have to realise that workers are having their purchasing power stolen from them by inflation. This is a problem. Remember the quote, don't squeeze too hard on the tube in the first place. So what does the Reserve Bank do? To try and bring down the demand for goods and services, and with it inflation, they hike up interest rates. Why? Higher interest rates means less money in the pocket for you and me if we have a mortgage. Which, let's face it, if I asked for a show of hands, would probably be most of us, right? And so when you've got less money in your pocket because you're paying out more in mortgage, that's less spending. You're cutting back, right? Ah, Cancelling Sky, cancelling Netflix, buying sausages, not steak. There will be short-term pain. People are feeling it now. How many of you have had letters from your bank every month or two for the last week while saying, we're writing to advise you. Your mortgage rate is increasing. Please call us if there's anything we can do to help you. I'll tell you what you can do to help me. No? Mm-hmm. How long will this pain go? That's hard to know. My own personal view is that the Reserve Bank has not been on top of this. Back in September last year, Adrian Orr, the Reserve Bank governor, said this, quote, We still have some work to do, but the good news is, this is only September last year, But the good news is, because we've done so much already, the tightening cycle is very mature, it's well advanced. In other words, not much in the way of interest rate rises to come, and or is saying, people, we got this, we got this. Back then, the OCR was 3%. Now, it's 5.25%, and who knows, it may well go up again. If that's a mature tightening cycle, then I'm an Olympic sprinter, and I think you can tell by looking. One thing that will be keeping Adrian Orr awake at night is what people believe. Jerome Powell, Federal Reserve Chair, remarked in 2019 that, quote, in our thinking, inflation expectations are the most important driver in actual inflation. Should inflation become locked in people's expectations, they'll act in ways that bring about that high inflation, which is things like, hey, I expect prices to go up 10% next year. I want my wage rise now to compensate me for it. And firms will be willing to give it to them because they'll believe they can put up their prices. That'll keep him up at night. That is the Reserve Bank nightmare. Expect him to talk tough to convince people they do have this under control. They already have been. They use words like committed right, to tell you that they are going to do this. They will get inflation down. I have no doubt about that. They should not have let it get away in the first place. With a bit of luck, the pain will be not too severe. We are fortunate. We're starting from low unemployment. That's helpful. We're also starting from relatively low interest rates. That's helpful. The official cash rate just prior to the global financial crisis was 8%. So it's been that high before. But the world is a little different now. And it's different in one important respect. Back then when it was 8%, householders were carrying a lot less debt. Because house prices were not as high as they are now. People have bigger mortgages. I don't think unemployment will get to the 12% we saw in the early 90s, 
I'm no forecaster, by the way, and forecasting is incredibly difficult, especially when it's about the future. So that's not something I know, but I don't think it will. We have the good fortune to be starting with some things behind us, and that gives us some room to move. But our lesson for the future is this. Printing lots of money seldom ends well. The best thing to do is not squeeze too hard on the tube in the first place. When did we forget that? When did we forget that? Right, there we go. Q&A. As the last mug whose job it was to tame the inflation dragon, we learnt two things. One is we had to take the politics out of central banking and make the Reserve Bank of New Zealand independent but accountable. Yes. And second, we had to focus monetary policy on its only job, which was to maintain price stability. Mm -hmm. I signed a contract that constituted between 0 and 2%. Yep. If you look at the raft of mistakes... Uh, that have been made by our central bank, how would you make them accountable? Uh, what would you do to the mandate? And how would you stop the new, if you like, corruption of politics into central banking? Because the central bank's been complicit mm. with the government in the, the, uh, the spending uh, exercise and the decision by the Minister of Finance to have a spending splurge uh, has been accommodated by the willingness of the central bank to soak it up as it were on its own balance sheet. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, it's a great comment. And, and fundamentally, I, I mean, you, you're right. And look, this is just my own personal view, all right? Uh, but um, I think that, um, number one, they, they took away the one-job aspect. Uh, I would unambiguously return them to one job, right? Uh, all these other things that they're focusing on they're all important issues, but they're not the job of the Reserve Bank, right? So in the Reserve Bank's last annual report, there was more uh, mentions of climate change than price stability. Now, climate change is an important thing, but it's not the Reserve Bank's job to solve it, right? They took their eye off the ball. They gave them um, maximum sustainable employment as another objective in 2019. And in 2021, um, the remit was changed that they should take account of, um, of, of house prices, right? <coughs> And that has meant that uh, you are totally right. It's taken the focus off that one job, right? So, you know, we gave you one job, right? Do that one job well. And now we've given them multiple jobs. I th I'm hopeful it will go back to that. And I think you're quite right. I, I was surprised in one sense, Adrian, oh, this is just my personal opinion, right? <laughs> this opinion is not that of the University of Canterbury. <laughs> um, it's... Um, I was, a bit, I was surprised in one sense when Adrian Orr got reappointed because I think that, you know, he has not done his job. On the other hand, I wasn't surprised because if Grant Robertson didn't reappoint him, what would it have said about that? And I think that they almost... I don't know, I mean, you're a better observer of this than me, but I just felt they looked a bit too close a little bit. And I think it undermined that Reserve Bank independence. And that Reserve Bank independence is very, very important People have to believe the Reserve Bank is not at the beck and call of the finance minister. Um, that's incredibly independent. And that was one of the most important things that, that, that was in that act um, and in that agreement, which is the Reserve Bank. The Reserve Bank has to have the ability to say to the, to the finance minister, tell your story walking, I don't care. You know? Yeah, I'm not buying your debt. I'm not funding your spending. Yeah. So, you know, I agree. Great comment. Yeah. I'd return them. I'd return them to one 
One job. You know, I would. What do I know? Um, one of the responses for, to inflation from the government was to uh, subsidize public transport. Um, and uh, now there are calls for free public transport from a lot of quarters. So what impact does that have? Is a wise measure to have? There will never be enough money thrown at public transport, according to some people. Now, I'm probably going to upset some people in this room. I live in Lincoln. Money put into things like public transport has to be justified on the basis that it provides benefits to the rest of us, not just to the people travelling, right? So when you make public transport cheap or free, most of the benefit of that goes to the people who are riding the bus. Now, we might care about that, but we might not, because it's not very well targeted. A lot of people who ride the bus, they're not having a problem affording the bus fare. Do we really want to subsidise their bus fare? I'm not sure that we do, right? So we've got to be a little bit careful there. Our experience with half-priced public transport is that it raised ridership on public transport almost not much, <laughs> right? Because the problem is that um, it, it's the biggest cost of public transport is not the fare. It's the inconvenience, where it doesn't go where you want, it's the time you have to take the bus, it's, it's standing in the rain, whatever it is. Those are the biggest costs. Now, you could say, well, we need to make bigger public transport investments. Maybe so. But New Zealand is a small population, elongated, empty country. <laughs> that doesn't make us a very good target for public transport. So we have to be quite thoughtful about where we do that and what sort of public transport system that we want. I think this, I, just my own personal opinion, right? Again, not that of the university because they love public transport, right? <laughs> And Simon Kingham, my, my colleague in geography, is probably sticking pins in my effigy right now, right? Um, it, you know, I, I, it's, it, it's something that we have to be a little bit more careful about than just building, um, you know, like rails and, mono and trains and, and stuff. I'm just not convinced it's money well spent. There are better ways we could do it. You mentioned about the inflation, and I want to know, like, as a, um, two people working full-time, I have a mortgage, and mm. then it's going to double. Uh, we were like 3.5%. Mm. Next year, it's going to probably go to 6.5%. Yeah. If they don't do anything, then I can see that coming. So your advice for people like us, like, what do we do? Do we need to find a second job? I mean, <laughs> we, can, we can still pay mm. for it, but with kids, we want to have some savings. It just means that when the interest rate hikes up, yeah. we won't be able to f save anymore. And yeah. for us, it's kind of scary. Well, the Reserve Bank would like to say thank you for feeling the pain. Right? Because let's, um, you know, let's be honest about it. That's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to put pain in your life so that you spend less money. That's, in, in, in nuts and bolts, that's what they're trying to do, right? Get you to spend less money. As to what each person should do, I'm not a financial advisor and it would be risky for me to give financial advice. Right? But the fundamentals always remain the same, don't they? So, you know, most people would say, look, you know, reduce debt if you can. You know, li live within your, you know, your budget and so on like that. I mean, all those things are fairly sensible sort of stuff. I just know that you are not going to be the only people who are feeling that, especially as a lot of fixed-rate mortgages are going to start to come off. A lot of people at the moment are insulated from it by the fact that they'd locked in a three-year rate or a five-year rate, but that'll come off. And when it comes off for those people, it's not just going to go up gradually. Some of us have been getting letters from our bank every six weeks or eight weeks. It's been like feeling like I've been boiled. I'm, I'm the frog in the pot. <laughs> but other people are just going to be the frog thrown straight into the pot. Yeah. It's gonna, it, it, there will be a bit of pain. 
Um, as in any crisis, I expect some people will benefit from this. Yep. And so I'm just curious at who will get most out of it and yep. why. And also if uh, a person has some savings, how to preserve the value. Mm. So one of the groups that benefit from this, um, paradoxically, can be borrowers. Because um, if you think about it, your debt stays the same. Yes, you're paying higher interest payments, but the value of your debt stays the same. Think about your grandparents when they bought a house for $20,000 in 1970. And by 1980, the house was worth $100,000, and they still owed $15,000 on the house. So what? Right? Kind of thing, right? So inflation tends to transfer wealth from savers to borrowers because inflation reduces the value of the debt in real terms, right? So, you know, imagine in the German hyperinflation, if you had a debt of 100,000 marks, well, a couple of months later, you could pay it off with pocket change, right? So borrow it, but that's a problem because people then tend to find borrowing more attractive and saving, as you've quite rightly alluded to, less attractive. And at the moment, we have what's called negative interest rates in real terms. So when the inflation rate goes higher than the interest rate you get in the bank, you are losing money, right? You are losing money. Now, up until about three or four years ago, you weren't. Inflation was 1% to 2%. Interest rates you could get on deposit at, say, 3 or 4 You were getting a couple of percent return a year. It's not much, but it's not going backwards. Now you are going backwards, and that's a problem because people won't want to save as much. And we want people to do some savings for a whole range of reasons, but savers definitely get hurt. Borrowers can get benefited. Another group that may benefit from this sometimes is firms. Low inflation often means that firms have to pay attention to how much they put up their prices. Because if you've got low inflation, you put up your prices of your coffee by 20 cents, and people go, oh, they didn't down the road put up their coffee by 20 cents. <laughs> right? And so the, ca so the cafe owner goes, oh, they've not put up my price by 20 cents. When everyone's putting up their prices, 50 cents, 60 cents, 70 cents, who the hell cares? It's all going up, right? And so it makes our firms a little less, um, you know, focused on doing a good job for the consumer in the best way they possibly can and looking for good ways to do things. They can get a little bit lazy around that. But, yeah, definitely, you're right. Um, in terms of national debt, how are we looking and when should we be worried um, I assume you mean government debt, because in the end, government debt is the thing that we're all obliged to pay. Uh, let's face it, you know, if our private sector corporations owe a billion dollars in debt, what do I care? Right? It's up to their shareholders to care about that, not me. But government debt I care about, because that's an obligation on me and my children and my grandchildren. We are fortunate in New Zealand we started with low government debt. So the um, uh, original Fiscal Responsibility Act, thank you, right, um, set governments up to be um, to behave, and basically said that you know they should maintain only prudent levels of debt. So we've been very fortunate in New Zealand to have a succession of really good finance ministers. I think whether you've liked their political flavour or not, they've generally been reasonably sensible with the money. You know, Michael Cullen did a couple of silly things like buying a railway train set at the end of his thing. But, you know, I mean, by and large, they've been pretty well. And what that's meant is that they've managed to generally keep debt down, which meant that we started with debt that was relatively low in the 20% of GDP. That gives us some room to move. Many other countries have debt levels up near 90% of GDP, and we are not remotely near that. Once we get up to, like, the 
40, 50% of GDP, which is we, we had sort of back in the, you know, we haven't had for a long time since the 70s and 80s, and I think we're going to start to get worried a wee bit in trouble. But I think at the moment, I wouldn't be too concerned. I'm interested in your views on what the Ukraine war, if that finishes, what, that happen, what, what happens to world economics Ooh. then? You know, I mean, clearly the Ukraine war has messed up energy markets uh, in Europe. Paradoxically, what that will almost certainly do is push Europe into other energy forms more quickly than they otherwise would have done. And, that, and that's potentially a very good thing. Uh, it may free up things like grain exports and things like that from, the, from Ukraine. But who knows? Because what does it look like? What does the end of this war look like? Is it conceivable that this war could go on for five or six years? Remember, the First World War, the Kaiser said to the German troops, you'll be home for Christmas. And the British said the same thing to their troops. So I don't... Gee, I don't know. What a good question. Uh, look, I'm not looking for sympathy, but my first uh, mortgage was in 1987, which was 21.5%. Uh, it's my understanding that the long-term mortgage interest rates are sort of running about 7 Have we just not had it really good for the last five years? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes we have. Um, we have had it, we've had it really good since about the mid, you know, since about the mid-1990s, early 90s when we got inflation under control. Okay, let's be honest about that. Getting inflation under control was really, really important then. It's really important now. And you're right, I have no sympathy for you. Okay? <laughs> and the reason I have no sympathy for you is be because, yeah, your interest rate was 21%, but that's not the whole picture. Your interest rate was 21% when inflation was 18 And you were getting annualised wage increases to adjust for inflation of 16 17%. So the difference between inflation and your interest rate was relatively small, right? And your house was going up in value by 20% a year. So you might have taken out a $20,000 mortgage to buy your house, and 10 years later, your mortgage is... Uh, and and $20,000 was, let, let's suppose that $20,000 was equal to one year's salary, let's just say, right, at that time. Ten years later, that $20,000, you still owe the bank $20,000, let's just say, but your salary is now $40,000. In other words, your loan is half the value of your salary purely due to inflation, and you've still got the house. So, it, it's yes, you're right, interest rates are 21%, but that's not the only thing that was going on uh, you know, at, at the time. So you effectively ended up with a lot of inflation-induced equity in your house, right? Uh, which was not earned. You can see why I haven't got any sympathy. Right? <laughs> Just because of inflation. It's pushing up the value of your house. It's pushing up your wages. Yeah, there's lots of other harms of inflation. But for a borrower, inflation simply reduces the relative value of your debt. Not a good thing, right? It encourages borrowing and discourages saving. Um, and it was made worse in the 70s when the government controlled interest rates and um, uh, inflation went up to like 12-15% and the government didn't let mortgage rates rise above 3%. Well, that was great, but no one could get a loan, right? No one was willing to lend at that money. So, you know, there we go. Quick question. Who's going to win the next election? No, just kidding, just kidding. Um, mortgage deductibility for landlords, so their yep. interest rate's gone really high, yep. um, and suddenly the tax, it's not you know, deductible. So they don't want to be a landlord anymore. How, how's that playing out, or how do you see that playing out? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, look, that, it's a political decision as to how you set the rules of your tax system. The interesting question then becomes is, what are the effects of that change in that rule? 
Now, we've just made it more expensive to be a landlord, right? That is going to have some effect on some people's decision to be a landlord relative to, say, putting their house on Airbnb, right? We should expect that, and let's not be surprised when that happens. It may well make um, you know, people a bit uh, more reluctant to get into, into that sort of game. It's up to the... It's a, political it's a political processes to decide how we set tax policy, but some tax policies have better and worse effects than others. And one thing we shouldn't do is assume that we can set this tax policy and nothing else will change. Oh, we're going to make it more expensive to be a landlord, but there won't be fewer landlords as a result. Probably not, right? And we can assume that, but I'm not sure it's right, right? So we've got it. we might decide, actually, we want to make this decision for various reasons about interest deductibility, and we know there'll be fewer landlords, and we're willing to accept that cost. I don't mind that argument at all. What I don't like is the argument which says, we're going to do this, and the number of landlords won't change. Don't fool me. You've made it more expensive to be, uh, to be a landlord. So we should expect more people to go to Airbnb or, or other things. It's not really a tax loophole, it's standard business practice. We can write the tax rules who, how we like, or how politicians like, but those writing of those tax rules has effects on people's behaviour. They introduced the um, tax rate of 39 cents in the dollar at 180,000, remember that? Probably doesn't affect many of us in this room, maybe, but I won't ask you to volunteer that information. Um, what we find is, what IID find, is that there is income bunching at $180,000. Why? Because people who can afford to pay their accountant are topping out their taxable income at 180000 and finding other ways to put their income elsewhere. We should not assume that when we change the rules, people won't change their behaviour. They will change their behaviour, especially if they can afford a good accountant or find a good accountant, <laughs> or at least an honest one. Who's going to win the next election? I've got no idea. It's going to be fun. Tell you that for nothing. Yeah. With, uh, with inflation, if New Zealand's workers or our companies became much more productive, what effect would that have on our current inflation rate? Raising our productivity is the only way to make us a wealthier country. Now, if you're sitting there and thinking, ah, oh, you know, that's just those economists talking about money and they just care about consumers and he's just a capitalist and he'll be against the wolf come the revolution, right? Remember that next time people want a world-class health system, you have to pay for it. So the only way that we can pay for it is to become a more productive economy, do things better, right? We look over the Tasman and everybody goes, they're paid more over there. Why is that? It's because their productivity has risen at a faster rate than ours has since 1960 and they can afford, therefore, to pay their workers more. At the same time, raising productivity also brings down your rate of inflation because you're able to produce more goods and services with the same inputs, right? If you can, if you, can um, you know, fly a plane with three people, like a, you know, Airbus 380 or whatever it is, they, I don't know how many they fly it with now. I mean, what does the first 747 need? It needed a crew of about 11. It becomes cheaper to fly that plane if you only need three to do it. Consumer prices can be lower as a result, right? One of the things we've... Air travel's cheaper now than it ever was. Mm. In Germany, you are able to um, fix your mortgage with your interest rates for up to 30 years. Um, 
and that's obviously not the case in New Zealand. It's like up to max five years. Why or why not do you think New Zealand should try this? That gives you stability on the borrower's side. That's a benefit that we're going to care about. Hey, the world is more stable for borrowers. But you've transferred all the risk to the lender. Now, lenders are going to care about that. Politicians may not care about that because borrowers vote. Lenders, not so much, right? But what it might do is, of course, it may well make lenders far less likely to lend to people than they otherwise would. Or if they're going to give you a 30-year rate, you will pay a rate that they expect will cover their risk for the 30 years. It's not clear to me that you are going to be better off in that circumstance. So you might be able to fix your rate at, say, 7% or 6% or whatever. I may be able to do better than that right? by only fixing it every two or three years. I don't know the answer to that question. I would certainly worry that what you have done is transferred all the risk to the lenders, and lenders are not stupid. They're going to be very aware of that, and when they lay, leap into a 30-year fixed contract, they're going to want to make sure that the um, interest rate they charge you is enough to compensate them for the risk that they now totally carry. That would be the question I would, I would want to know. You as a borrower would be better off. And we're not just yeah, experiencing sure. a long cycle here. Um, we've had um, a, we've had 20 years of stability. Yep. We've talked about um, high inflation in the 1980s and the 19, early 1990s. We've talked about a wee squeeze in the GFC. For those of us who were around in the 1980s and we saw the 22% with no empathy. Um, <laughs> but are we not just sort of experiencing a long cycle here trailing along? I'd like your comment on that. Yeah. I mean, there is some cyclical element to it, but there are some significant... COVID is a significant shock, right? It, and that's disrupted what has been a long-term pattern. So in the period from, like, the 1990s through, yes, we had the global financial crisis, but in the long scheme, it's a bit of a blip. COVID may well be the same. There are some very important factors that kept the world stable from the perspective... Taxi? From the perspective of um, inflation. So the emergence of China drove down the price of consumer goods, right? I mean, in, in, 19, in 1990, China was nowhere. They were nowhere, right? And now, of course, they're the second biggest economy in the world, right? Um, and in 2000, China was um, about one-sixth the size of Japan. Now they're three times the size. 20 years. So don't quite quote me on that. I can't quite know. So that's been massive, right? A big workshop has been released onto the world. Technology has made a big difference, so a lot of things have become cheaper or even free, right, because of some of those, uh, some of those things. And those things have acted to keep a lid on, um, on prices. We've had a fairly good consensus around a connected world, so globalisation has been a sort of a generally agreed thing. We've become more connected. A couple of events in the last few years, I think, have undermined that, right? Uh, Brexit and the election of Trump potentially may have signalled like people are not wanting to be so connected to the rest of the world anymore. Well, that's going to make things a bit more expensive. So to the extent that those things get undermined, you know, the Chinese relationship with the US, supply chains not being so global, we could see a different change. Whether that's cyclical, I don't know. I don't know. But this is a shock rather than a cycle, right? I would, I would call this a shock more than a cycle. Hmm. 
you know, you said the Reserve Bank are now responsible for house prices, among other things, and, you know, they'll raise the interest rates with the idea of bringing that down. Do you think that we're going to see interest rates high enough that it's going to have, like, a significant effect? Arthur Grimes, remember, said they've been really incompetent, right? That's pretty much fighting talk. They held money too loose for too long, and, that, and what you saw, of course, was a massive run-up in house prices as a result in the last two or three years. I mean, for those of you who live here in Lincoln, if you pay any attention to section prices, you'll just know what they did over a period of about 18 months to two they years. Doubled. They doubled. That was always due for a correction. The problem with that is knowing when that correction's going to come and how much that correction's going to be. There's always somebody who, after the event, says they predicted it, Right? <laughs> But then there's always somebody who's predicting anything, right? And how much house prices will fall um, is, a, is, a, is a difficult question to answer. Yes, there are higher interest rates, but the Reserve Bank has just changed the loan to value restrictions. ANZ said the other day that they felt that the house market is probably bottoming out. But let's not be unrealistic about this. When we say bottoming out, it's like, oh my goodness, they're back to where they were eight months ago. Right? I mean, it's like, you know, come on. It's not a problem for your house price to fall unless you need to sell it. If you don't need to sell it and you're happily living in it and you're paying your mortgage, you really don't have that much of a problem. Your problem comes if you need to sell it and your house isn't worth as much as you owe. But it is going to be tough at high interest rates for kids to get into uh, houses. How much will house prices fall? If I knew that, I wouldn't be working for the university on the wages that I am. <laughs> Right? I'd be out property speculating and being a hell of a lot richer, I'm sure. So no one really knows. Those people who say they know, uh, they don't really know. And if they did know, they should keep it to themselves and buy property, shouldn't they?